0: And baseball fans, it's time to take a trip from coast to coast across Major League Baseball. There it goes, a long drive. If it stays fair, home
1: run. One strike away. Sandy into his windup. Here's the pitch. Swung out and missed the perfect game. Fly ball deep left center. Grips him on the run. Yes! 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 we have given you a championship. Listen to this crowd.
0: Left side, Swanson. To first. Braves! world champions! Braves and baseball talk. Straight from the Diamond. Here's Grant McCauley.
2: And hello and welcome to From the Diamond. Grant McCauley with you here from the Kia Studios on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game on a Sunday afternoon as we wrap up a week that was for the Atlanta Braves that they got a little bit better uh, based on last week and the results against the San Diego Padres. That was not what the Braves were looking for after their very nice road trip. They were looking for something a little bit more like what we've seen against the Cincinnati Reds and thus far throughout the weekend against the Kansas City Royals as well. Braves looking to secure another sweep on Sunday. They've already won another series, and then they've got another big test as this road trip continues, and they roll into San Diego. So a lot to talk about on this show. We're going to dive into all the aspects of what's going on with the Atlanta Braves. We've got more injury stories. We've got more injury updates. We've got all kinds of things happening in the Braves lineup. The majority of those are quite exciting, so we're going to get into all of that and some of the great things we've seen over the past week. I'm also going to be joined by a couple of special guests on this show as we take a deep dive into the Braves rotation. Eno Saris of The Athletic is going to join me a little bit later on this hour. And when we take our look across Major League Baseball, as I like to say, around the big leagues, I'll be joined by my good friend Melanie Newman of Masson and the Orioles broadcast, as well as MLB Network. She will check in in the 5 o'clock hour, and we'll talk about some things going on in the American League East and across all of baseball. So I hope you'll tune in for that. And of course, I hope you are following along on social media. You can find me at Grant McCauley on both Twitter and Instagram. Find the show on Twitter at From the Diamond with an underscore on the end and on Instagram at From the Diamond, Nice and easy there. You can like the show on Facebook, and if you need links to anything, fromthediamond.com is the place. And of course, make sure you subscribe to From the Diamond wherever you get your podcast, and check it out on the Odyssey app. So I think I got you caught up on my whole checklist of ways to connect with the show. So let's go ahead and connect with the week that was for the Atlanta Braves. I mean, The Sunday finale saw the Braves with the best record in the National League heading into uh, the weekend or really heading into the next week atop the National League East, exactly where they want to be and continuing to build on what has been a hot start. So I decided, let me go back and see exactly how good the Braves have been this year as opposed to some of the starts they've gotten off to recently. We know the lockout last year kind of pushed the season back by a week and the Braves did not win their 11th game until the calendar had already turned to the month of May but you go back even over the past few years, I think 2018 was the last time that the Braves had started even close to the 11-4 and start they were off to after Saturday's game in Kansas City. And the last time that they got off to a better start than they're off to this year of 11-4 and was way back in 2013 when they started 11-1. and And in fact, they were in the midst of a big winning streak. And we're on quite a nice tear in winning the National League East back then. But a lot of things have changed. And we know that the Braves have been kind of a second-half club the last couple of years in particular. But this is an extremely, extremely good team that is off to a good start. And despite the fact that they have been beset with injuries. I mean, you talk about just different plagues and maladies and things of biblical proportion or otherwise. Uh, The Braves' injuries just continue to pile up. And it continued again into this week as well. And... You know, as much as I'd love to talk to you about the hot start and the hot bats and the big things Sean Murphy's doing, the great play of Ronald Acuna Jr. and so many others, we can also talk about the fact that the Braves are without another regular, Orlando Arcia landing on the injured list after getting hit by a pitch on the left wrist by Hunter Green, ninety-eight mile an hour fastball plunked him on Wednesday in the finale against Cincinnati. It, there was hope that, because the X rays were negative, that you might dodge a bullet there, but the CT scan and M R I that revealed some structural damage, a micro-fracture. That is going to be something that's going to take, I would imagine, a number of weeks. Exactly how many? We'll kind of find out. I know uh, folks have talked about Nick Castellanos of the Phillies. Coming back from one of those a while back, and it only taken him about three weeks. I think that was in 2021, but it really depends on the severity. And for Castellanos, as a right-handed hitter, this was the top wrist, or the front wrist, rather than the back wrist, which is where Arcia got hit. So, Or, or vice versa, I should say. So, it, really, it's... Not apples and oranges, but it's at least a little bit different if we're talking the same kind of citrus. Uh, and we'll see exactly how long Orlando Arcia is going to be back. So one of the big stories that we talked about all winter long, and that we talked about throughout spring training, was Vaughn Grissom getting an opportunity to play shortstop for the Atlanta Braves this year, and it is happening. And it only took ten games down in AAA A for him to get that call. And unfortunately for Orlando Arcia, he's going to have to heal up and get himself back. And we'll see how shortstop is sorted out at that point. But A lot of interesting dominoes could fall by the end of the month, and that's something that we're going to talk quite a bit about uh, as we continue on with the show. Uh, But you add Arcia to the number of regulars that the Braves are without at this point, Michael Harris II, who, by the way, is doing better but hasn't been cleared to hit, so he will not be activated from the injured list in time for the series in San Diego. Harris, I know, is hopeful to start hitting soon, and perhaps by the time the Braves get back home and host the Houston Astros heading into the weekend, They'll have the opportunity to put Michael Harris back in center field, which would allow for some of the more surprising names or one of the most surprising names for the Braves here in the early going, Sam Hilliard, to perhaps be available to slide over to left field. He has played great in center. We'll talk more about him as the show goes on, as he has been, again, one of the highlights and one of the bright spots for the Braves on this road trip and here early in the season. Just a very impressive player that the Braves picked up who just wasn't able to turn that potential into results in Colorado, which is a weird place as a hitter to not be able to find success, but he has come over to Atlanta. He has looked like a very good fielder, a very good hitter. He runs the bases extremely well, just a well-rounded player and somebody it was very nice to have stashed away, whether it was on your bench or in AAA, whatever the case was going to be, if you've got to lose a Michael Harris the second, you need somebody that can come in and play a very steady center field, and Sam Hilliard has most certainly done that. But you don't have Michael Harris. You don't have Orlando Arcea. Not really a timetable for Travis Darnot either because he does have a concussion history. So getting another concussion and landing on this IL, even though it was only a seven-day stint, the Braves aren't going to be rushing him back. Really haven't heard anything as far as baseball activities are going yet for Travis. Hopefully there'll be an update maybe at some point during the San Diego trip or when they get back home against the Houston Astros and we can get at least an idea of when Darnot could jump back in the lineup. But by the way, I don't know if you've noticed this or not, but Sean Murphy can hit. And Sean Murphy's been doing a lot of hitting with Travis Darno sideline. He's been catching just about every single inning for the Braves in the absence of Darno. He finally took a day to be the DH on Sunday with Chadwick Tromp behind the plate for the Atlanta Braves. So eventually, you know, somebody was going to have to check in there and get in that crouch and, you know, signal the signs for the pitchers. But Sean Murphy has done a tremendous job and at the plate, absolutely red hot. He might be the National League's player of the week with uh, what he has done for the Atlanta Braves, at least over the last five games, heading into Uh, Sunday. He's 9 for his last 20. All 9 of those hits for extra bases. 3 of them homers, 6 of them doubles. He's knocked in 11 runs and just the opportunity to hit cleanup in a lineup that includes Ronald Acuna Jr., Matt Olson, and Austin Riley in front of you. You're going to get some opportunities to be involved in some run scoring and that is exactly what Sean Murphy has done. He had that walk-off home run against the Cincinnati Reds in extra innings. His first homer as a member of the Braves. Doesn't get much more memorable than that. Very impressive uh, way to kind of put your stamp on your first long ball with your new club. And then he's continued to just tear his way right on through Kansas City, picking up extra base hit after extra base hit. Now, as you look around the Braves lineup or up and down the Braves lineup, I mentioned Arcea being out. Von Grissom is up. He's swinging the bat pretty well. I think the first three or four innings that he was at the big leagues at short, he got a lot of different tests. And as they say in baseball, you know, the ball will find you. And the ball was finding Von Grissom. He had a double clutch and a throw that he wasn't able to get a fast runner in Bobby Witt Jr. That happens. He had a relay play on a double play that I'm not really sure what Charlie Morton had going on, but when he ducked, it seemed like at first, oh no, you know, maybe something's going on with Von Grissom here and it's gonna just cascade out of control. No, it was a good throw to first. And I think Charlie was trying to get to the bag, was looking down and just let the throw sail over the top of him. And when it did, the error was initially on Grissom, changed to being on Morton, I thought it was all along. And then, you know, I felt like after booting a ball then you were kind of wondering, all right, how's he going to respond to this? I think that's the big question in general. You know, you can skate along doing just fine when everything is going your way. But when you start to deal with adversity and it starts to kind of multiply on you, is it going to careen out of control? Or are you going to be able to separate that and make the next play? And a couple of innings later, you had Vaughn Grissom making a nice diving play, helping the Braves save a couple of runs from scoring, and then being involved in the offense, which he has been, I think, quite a bit in his limited time in the big leagues. And he's got the profile to be involved in the run scoring for this club. The question was, can he come up and play a very capable shortstop for this team? And he's going to get his opportunity. How long is it going to be? A week, two weeks, three weeks? We don't really know. Will it be longer than that? It really depends on the health of Orlando Arcia. But we will see how all that plays out. And speaking of health, the Braves got Kyle Wright back in their rotation this week. That's a huge boost for it. We talked about it. I know his first outing against Cincinnati, especially in that third inning, it kind of went sideways on him. And he had some challenges on kind of a cold, blustery day up in Kansas City. It was very windy. I know that yesterday's game was not the greatest of conditions either. But I think Kyle was able to battle and stick in there. He's been leaning a lot on his breaking ball here early. I think that there's some location that he's looking to kind of refine for his fastball. It's getting a little bit too much run on it for him. But I thought he's looked pretty good, especially on Sunday. He was able to pitch into the sixth inning. Did allow a couple of runs to the Royals before being lifted in that sixth frame, but by and large, I think it was progress for Kyle Wright, and that's what you wanted to see was some progress. Now, if the Braves are able to get Max Fried back in their rotation, which could happen as soon as Monday against the San Diego Padres, that seems to be the expectation as of right now. I know there's been some mention of the possibility of Michael Soroka factoring into these plans. I don't really see that yet. Now, could it happen by the end of the month? It absolutely could because if he's able to go out and get a couple of more starts in Gwinnett where he kind of proves to you a couple of times he's a five, six-inning pitcher, He's got an 85 to 90 pitch count. I think you just feel more comfortable both, A, putting him in a position to succeed, and and after two and a half years, you might as well do that, and you also put your bullpen in a position where you just know, hey, this guy, he should be able to get you to a a good point where the bullpen can pick up and not have to charge or be charged with 12 to 15 or more outs if things just kind of go sideways. Now, that can happen. Everybody has a bad start. In fact, everybody has a handful of bad starts typically during the year. And you don't get to really pick when they are. But either way, you'd just like to see that Mike or Michael has got the opportunity to build his pitch count up, prove himself healthy, both to himself and to the club, and then maybe just bring him back in. So when could that be? Well, I don't know. But you got Bryce Elder throwing pretty well. You're hoping to have Max Fried back. You've got Kyle Wright back in there. I think Spencer Strider and Charlie Morton, you knew what you had there, and you're very happy you did because there were a lot of question marks around those two men. And despite all of this kind of swirling around in the midst of it, you're off to an 11-4 and four start heading into Sunday's game in Kansas City. So a lot of good things going on uh, for the Atlanta Braves in that regard. Now, we're going to talk a lot about this rotation as we go on. Uh, I've got Eno Saris of The Athletic joining me a little bit later in the show. But when we come back, we are going to talk about one of the big questions that everybody is asking, and that is, could the Braves finally be reaching the end of the line with their decision for Marcel Ozuna, the embattled left fielder slash D.H., in the third year of his four-year contract, and it has not been the move the Braves were hoping it would be for so many reasons. We'll dive into what's going on there and take a look at some of the other big Braves stories from the week right here on From the Diamond with Grant McCauley on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game.
0: Now, back to more From the Diamond.
2: And welcome back in. This is From the Diamond. Grant McCauley with you from the Kia Studios on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. As we wind away what's left of the weekend, And take a look back at the week that was for the Atlanta Braves. We'll spend a little bit of time getting you set for the week to come for Atlanta because there are two very tough opponents awaiting San Diego Padres in the second half of this road trip after the Braves are done in Kansas City. And then they invite the Houston Astros to Truist Park for a three-game series that if you're looking for what we hope will be, perhaps, an October preview for two clubs that could meet for all the marbles. Well, how about the last two teams to win the World Series? You had the Braves beating the Astros in 2021. You had the Astros winning again last year. So, It could be quite possibly an October preview, a World Series preview. We'll find out all of that. Of course, it's April, but we like to get a little bit excited about some of the matchups and especially when there's a history that those two clubs have with one another from just a couple of years ago where the Braves, they did the thing. They got hot at the right time and they rolled it all the way through and won the World Series, beating the Astros in doing so in six games. So we'll see how all of that plays out and what these two clubs look like as they match up against each other in April and then keep in mind, How much different they could look by the time you get to October. Because the Braves club that started 2021 was not the team that rolled into the World Series and got the best of the Houston Astros, got through the L.A. Dodgers, got over the Milwaukee Brewers. I mean, a lot of things, uh, a lot of acquisitions had to happen in order to make that possible as well. Now, one thing that the Braves have been known for, especially the last couple of years, and really maybe longer than that, is the offense. The offense has been the calling card, I think, of this team here in the early going as well. And the top three in this order... I mean, we're talking about three players that could get some serious MVP consideration. And it all starts at the very top of the order with Ronald Acuna Jr. I tweeted out a couple of days ago, and while you know night to night the stats are going to change and day to day and the leaderboards, especially early, there can be a lot of turnover there. But when you're looking at the the top of the National League leaderboard in a lot of offensive categories and starting for a leadoff man, I always like to look at that runs column. I know that that's not his responsibility to drive himself in every time, though Ronald is capable of doing that. I mean, this is a guy that's on pace to score. What, about 150 runs? The Braves' modern record is 131 set by Dale Murphy in 1983. If Ronald is healthy and going at this pace, even with some ups and downs, I mean, 131 runs is certainly within the realm of possibility here. And then you look, at least heading into Saturday's game, he was on pace for something like 260 hits. Uh, That would also set a Braves record, just here to tell you that. 200 hit seasons are pretty rare. Uh, To get 260-ish hits or more, uh, that would be Hall of Fame level. And We'll see if Ronald Acuna Jr. is able to start checking off those kind of boxes. A 200 hit season, I'm just telling you, Ronald Acuna Jr. capable of doing that. 30 doubles, they can do that. 40 home runs. Hey, we're tracking that on Twitter, at Grant McCauley. You can find it. The the Ronald Acuna 40-40 tracker is there and available for you. I'm going to have to do an update, and I'll get to it very soon. But Three homers, seven steals, I believe, at this point. So on a 30-homer pace, on a 70-plus steal pace, 72 stolen bases is the Braves' modern franchise record set by Otis Nixon in 1991. Is Ronald Acuna Jr. going to steal 70 bases? We're all going to find out together. He's on pace to do it, but again, it's very early. But that's one of the most fascinating parts I think about early in the season is you look at these numbers, and A, you want to see everybody get off to a great start and make that first impression, that goes without saying. Then a series turns into two, two turns into four. All of a sudden, we're two, three weeks into the season, a month into the season. Then you start getting the sample size that tells you who exactly players are. And what we're seeing from Ronald Acuna Jr., both in the numbers and the metrics and the old eye test, the good old-fashioned eye test, is telling me that the guy who was really clicking on all cylinders before the ACL injury in 2021, that's the guy playing right field for the Braves. That's the guy leading off for the Braves. That's the guy running the bases this year. And that should make a lot of people in Braves country very, very happy to see. And he's not alone because you got Matt Olson in year two with the Braves. I know a lot has been made about him coming over, the trade, the extension, the changing of the guard at first base, and having a, hopefully, franchise fixture. If you're going to sign him to an eight-year deal, that certainly is a plan. But it was definitely a change. And I think that Matt had to kind of go through 2022, not just being able to just kind of settle in, just be Matt Olson. And I think he is able to do that now. I think he was able to kind of figure some things out through the course of the season, finish off hot, came up huge in that that series against the Mets. I know it wasn't a playoff series, but homers in all three games there looked like the swing was coming back, looked uh, about as good as anybody over the final couple of weeks for the Braves, carried that right on into spring training where he absolutely torched the Grapefruit League, and he has brought it right on into the regular season as well and been a big-time contributor to the Braves' early success here. Among the RBI leaders and home run leaders for both the club and the league, as far as at least runs batted in are concerned. And when you brought in Matt and you were thinking, hey, we need a guy that can hit 30-plus home runs, maybe 40, maybe driving 110, 120 runs, whatever it may be. I know those are the old-fashioned stats, but I like seeing them. And if you want to stack up two of those guys in a row, then let's talk about Austin Riley. Because he set a career high in home runs last year. He flirted with 40. I believe Matt Olson's career high is 39 home runs back in 2021 with the Athletics. He's capable of doing that. I mean, he's capable of of hitting more than 40 home runs, and so has Austin Riley. So now you've got MVP candidate Ronald Acuna Jr. with all of his dyna- dynamic play and, and all the tools that he has. You've got him. You're sending him out first to kind of set the tone for this offense. Then you send up somebody like Matt Olson who appears to be completely locked in, and a hitter like Austin Riley, who is just coming into, this should scare you, the prime of his career. These first couple of years are great because he's established himself and he's shown you, hey, this is a hitter that you can build around in the middle of the lineup. But what's the ceiling for Austin Riley? because I can tell you he didn't go home and just kind of sit around and wait to come back and just go hunting the whole winter. No, this guy was working. And not only has he been working on the field, in the cage, you know, with the glove, doing all those things. I mean, he went out this winter and was working with a mental performance coach because he really wants to be able to have that focus exactly where it needs to be at all times. I think that's a pretty big deal, hard to overlook as far as those things are concerned. But All right, we talk about those three guys, and they do set the tone for this Braves lineup, but there have been some serious questions about basically four through the rest of the lineup, particularly now that you've lost Orlando Arcia. How are you going to fill all those? You have no Travis Darno, You have no Michael Harris. You have no Orlando Arcia. Uh, Marcelo Zuna has not been hitting. Eddie Rosario, I think, has shown some signs of being able to contribute to this Braves offense. But, again, how about the play of Sam Hilliard? He's been terrific. Hitting well over three hundred. He's stealing bases. He's making great catches in the outfield. I think we've seen some stuff from Kevin Pillar on this road trip as well. The veteran the Braves brought in kind of late on to help out in left field. Uh, Eli White's up from A Gwinnett. He's a pretty good outfielder as well. Hasn't gotten to do a whole lot offensively. Hasn't gotten a ton of playing time. But you've got those guys lined up. But at cleanup, you needed somebody to step in. And talking about stepping in, I talked about this when we opened up the show. Sean Murphy is really finding himself at the plate. And after all the discussion about you're bringing over a gold Glover, this guy has a great arm, this guy is going to handle the pitching staff, The best possible way, you're going to be able to team him up with Travis Darno and have this dynamic uh, catching tandem. and, And you knew they were going to produce between the two of them. He was going to get the opportunity to finally hit in a ballpark that might actually like him and not hate him, unlike the Coliseum, which I don't think was the best place for him to ply his craft. And now we're seeing him absolutely find kind of a next level. And I know we talk about small sample sizes all the time. But for the folks that were a little bit worried after three or four games that Sean Murphy only had one hit, I think we can kind of breathe a sigh of relief. I was sure he was going to have more than one hit this year, and it turns out we were right. And he got a whole bunch of hits against the Cincinnati Reds and against the uh, Kansas City Royals over the weekend. Nine extra base hits and 20 at-bats is a pretty good string. Uh, Braves put out a press note that the only other player in Braves' franchise history with nine extra base hits, I believe, in a five-game span, if I'm not mistaken, was Joe Adcock back in 1954. That's a member of the 57 World Series team, if you want kind of historical precedent. And I tweeted this out earlier today. Joe Adcock is one of only three players in franchise history with a four-home run game. So in the middle of him doing it, he was hitting four home runs in one game to get four of those extra base hits. Now, Sean Murphy hasn't had a four-homer game, but six doubles and three homers in five games. Sign me up for that all season long. You want to go on a couple of those streaks, be my guest. be very happy to see that. And it's a good way to knock in 11 runs in a five-game span, which is what Sean Murphy has done as well. So looking at this offense... I think it's just been impressive. You knew what you were going to get out of, the top, of the, three, the top three in the order. You needed somebody to step in and clean up. You can check that box. You knew you were going to have injuries at some point, and you're finding guys stepping in and finding ways to contribute to this club. And Sam Hilliard was certainly one of those guys. But I think all of this does, as you look at who's performing, uh, what you've been asking of certain players, uh, let's throw Vaughn Grissom into the mix because he's been elevated from AAA to play with Arcia out. I don't think there's any real question about the offensive capabilities of Von Grissom. He showed us, I think, a lot last year. He went through some of the highs and lows that every young player goes through. You're going to come up, maybe catch the league by surprise. And I think he did that for about three or four weeks. The last couple of weeks, the going got a little bit tougher because all of a sudden, you know, the video gets out. You know, teams will just say, all right, well, if you can hit fastballs, now we know you can. We're not going to throw you any of those. Here's a whole bunch of off-speed stuff, and here's a bunch of junk. And are you going to be able to show us that you're going to spit on those pitches and wait for your mistakes, wait for your opportunity to get a fastball and a good count and do your damage. And I think that that, you know, toward the end of the season, and when you're elevated from Double A and thrown into a position like Vaughn Grissom was, I think he played pretty admirably. But you knew there were going to be some struggles in there. But now he's seen that. He's experienced that. He had a whole big league spring training. And no, he didn't want to get optioned down to AAA Gwinnett. But you know what he did? He went down there and he did the work. And he was hitting pretty well through the first 10 games. And when I talked to Vaughn at Gwinnett's media day, you know, one of the things that we talked about was, He didn't expect to be in the big leagues last year. That wasn't something that was on his radar, was on his mind when he was reporting to, you know, to play in Rome and Mississippi and places like that. He was not expecting uh, to be the big league second baseman at that, play completely out of position uh, in the 2022 season. But that's the thing that happened. And we kind of joked that the right things happened for him. Well, the wrong things were happening for the team that opened up that opportunity. And that, again, was what happened this year because Orlando Arcia, who got hurt last year and opened the door for the Vaughn Grissom call-up, and remember Ozzy Albies was out for such a long time, that brought Vaughn right on back. And I think that he is in the right mindset, in the right space, and, and physically I think he's going to be able to handle the challenge that is playing shortstop, which is this is not the first time he's played it. He's just playing it at the biggest level with the brightest lights with the biggest expectations ever, and uh, that's all. That's just that. That's all that's happening. But this is a guy that I do think has the physical capability and the mental toughness and the awareness and the work ethic when you consider all of the things that he has done and can do with Ron Washington over the course of the winter and the daily work that's going to go with it. I think that this kid can come, come up and be more than adequate shortstop for the Braves, especially in a short term, which we hope it'll be with Orlando Arcia getting back to full health as soon as possible. So I brought all those things up, talked about know Vaughn Grissom, Sam Hilliard, uh, Travis Darnot being injured, talked about that a little bit earlier, Michael Harris being out, Vaughn Grissom coming up from AAA Gwinnett. Well, what does this all mean? At some point, these guys are all going to get healthy, and you're going to have a roster crunch. And there is one man who, when you bring up roster crunch, I think the seat's got to be getting a little bit hot. I think it's been hot for a while. And that one man is Marcelo Zuna, who is off to a dreadful start to the 2023 season. And I've said this for a couple of weeks now. If there was anybody that couldn't afford to go, what, three for 40 to start the 2023 season, Marcelo Zuna was that guy. And Mark Bowman of MLB.com, and i got to look this up because I want to make sure I get it right, but he tweeted this out earlier today in regards to Eddie Rosario needing eye surgery last year. And that was not the start that Eddie Rosario wanted to get off to. Let's just call that the understatement of the show. Eddie Rosario last year was three for 44. He had a double, five walks, and 10 punch outs when it was determined that he needed eye surgery and went on the injured list and was out for a while. Marcelo Zuna is 3 for 40 with two homers, six walks, and 13 strikeouts. So you're telling me that this guy is striking out more than a guy that basically couldn't see last year? At least vision impaired? That's not a great company to be in when you consider the circumstances are completely different. And look, I get the guy's struggle. And when we talk about struggles, it's not just 2023 for Marcelo Zuna. Like We're not just picking on a guy for two bad weeks and just being unfair because it's the first two weeks of the year. You got a 2022 season that was down noticeably from his career norms, basically to the point where you just have to wonder like, how can you give it back to this guy and not give opportunities to other players? And we all know 2021 was a lost season for him as well. So now as you look at it, it's a history of underperformance and then all of a sudden you have a roster that's deep enough and talented enough that once you get healthy, I just don't know that you're in a place where you can afford to carry a player. Who's a not useful, and B, not going to get at-bats because he can't outplay the other guys at those positions. I know that the money's in there, and that's been the thing the whole time. People have asked me how long is this going to go on. I said, look, 2023, even though there's another year on the contract after this, 2023, I think, is when this reaches critical mass because either he's going to hit and he's going to contribute or the Braves are going to have to make a tough decision about what they want to do with Marcelo Zuna and what they have to do in this case because if you get Lerner to learn Arcia back and Von Grissom's been hitting really well, I'm not telling you Von Grissom's going to move to left field Maybe he goes back to AAA, and that just kind of is what it is, and it's a tough thing that happens to young players. But you're telling me that if Sam Hilliard's hitting great and Eddie Rosario's in the picture and healthy and Kevin Pillar's doing well for you and Travis Darno comes back to play, that where are the at-bats, whether in DH or left field? Where are the at-bats that you would give to a player who is struggling so mightily over two, three, four other options that could, whether righty or lefty, give you the look that you need, the matchup that you need on that day to have the best lineup possible? I think in April, we knew that there was going to be a leash of some length on how long Marcel was going to be able to be an everyday member of the club. But I think we're finding out, if you go hit list this often, you're not going to run into enough home runs and go one for 12 in between and that be usable contribution to this club. So when exactly could it happen? I think it could happen sooner than later. And a few things that could be the dominoes that need to fall. Michael Harris comes off the injured list. Travis Darnot comes off the injured list, and you get Orlando Arcia back. And at that point, you got a very full house. Now, A couple of moves may be obvious. Chadwick Tromp goes back to AAA. Maybe you option Von Grissom, and, you know, you hate it. But it's just kind of part of the journey of a young player who's trying to earn the opportunity, even if he plays well, if you do get Arcia back. Maybe there's some other move that's off the radar that I haven't talked about yet that they would make and could make. But at some point, you got some limited seats in this game of musical chairs. I think Marcelo Zuna is going to end up getting caught without a chair so those are a lot of things that we talked about from the week that was for the Atlanta Braves maybe the first couple of weeks that were but when we come back we're going to turn our attention to the starting rotation because I think the Braves have got a pretty good group it could get stronger with Max Fried getting back and I want to talk about that rotation with Eno Sarris of the athletic he has got a great eye and mind for pitching we're going to dive into the Braves starting five as from the diamond with Grant McCauley continues on sports radio 92.9 the game
0: Now, more From the Diamond with Grant McCauley on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game.
2: Welcome back to From the Diamond with Grant McCauley here on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. Hope you are enjoying your Sunday. Thanks for spending it with me. Make sure you're subscribed to From the Diamond wherever you get your podcast. And make sure you're following along on Twitter. You can find me at Grant McCauley. You can find the show at From the Diamond with an underscore on the end. And if you need links to anything that we've got going on here, make sure you check out FromTheDiamond.com. Now, I wanted to get an inside look at what goes on in the Braves rotation because we watch these guys every fifth day, whether it's Max Fried and Kyle Wright, who are hopefully going to be the stalwarts of this rotation this year as the Braves get themselves healthy. Spencer Strider, of course, makes a lot of headlines. And Charlie Morton, we're looking to see him get back to being the old Charlie Morton. And I love a comeback story. So is Michael Sirocco going to be rejoining this group at some point in the not-too-distant future? We're all hoping so, but I want to get a look at what these guys do that makes them so special. And to help me take an inside look, I want to welcome Eno Saris of The Athletic into the show. You can follow him on Twitter at Eno Saris. Eno, it's been quite a while since we've had a chance to catch up, but I am really appreciative of the time that you're giving me today because we get to talk about the Braves starting rotation, which has a little bit of everything. It checks an awful lot of boxes, I'd say.
3: Oh, yeah. Uh, Some of my favorite people to talk to in the game. Spencer Strider is really smart about his craft, so is Charlie Morton. What a great young group of, well, they're not all young, but <laughs> sorry, Charlie. Uh, Max Freed also yeah. just a, a real delight to talk to and all of them so smart about their craft.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And, and while they all do throw differently, I do think it's kind of the acumen that they have that really sets them apart. So I want to start with probably, I mean, I think he could be the most exciting young pitcher to burst on the scene in the last couple of years, or at least he's on the short list. And that, of course, is Spencer Strider. I enjoy getting to watch this guy go every fifth day. I know a lot of Braves fans do. Not only does his arm pass the eye test, but I'd imagine the advanced stats typically match up quite nicely, and you have something called Stuff Plus. So if you want to get into that just a little bit for what it does in terms of allowing us to maybe see even more the measures of greatness of a pitcher like Spencer Strider.
3: Yeah, I mean, basically Stuff Plus is what it sounds like. It it just looks at the physical characteristics of the pitch. It's looking for the nastiest pitches, but in the past th- this is born in the radar gun you know it's born with scouts where they're trying to judge the nastiest of pitches outside of the results they're trying to look and see who has the most hop on their seam, who has the most bite on their curveball and such what stuff plus does allows us to do is put together movement and velo and spin even mm-hmm. and then uh, the release point is a really important factor in this so for example, Spencer Strider has the best fastball in baseball um, among starting pitchers, uh, judged by Stuff Plus. And uh, part of the reason is that he gets good hop. Part of the reason is he sits 97. Uh, but part of the reason is also that he gets good hop relative to a low release point. And like Jake DeGrom and Edwin Diaz and, and a, fair, a fair amount of other guys uh, that have good four seams, but release them from a little bit lower of a slot than you'd, you'd figure. What that does is the hitter just sees a lower slot and thinks, you know, it's going to have a certain type of movement and then it comes and sort of blasts them, yeah. you know, up, you know, it kind of hops up on them. And, uh, and so Strider's fastball, that is such a great foundation for him to start with. It's a, it's a pretty different foundation from the rest of the crew. He's the only starter that has an above average fastball by stuff. Plus. So he's, pretty different from the rest of the Braves who kind of do it with their other pitches
2: yeah and typically it does take that mix of course and for Strider and I know a lot of people have said this yes the fastball is super exciting the slider is a dynamic pitch for him but how long can he go as essentially a two-pitch pitcher as far as being a starting pitcher that's typically not something now I know he mixes in the change I talk talked to him in spring training I think it's something he may throw a little bit more maybe as the season goes on but it probably takes a few starts or at least quite a few innings to really get that pitch ingrained into the entire arsenal. But I guess my question is, from a reliever's profile, if you're a fastball slider guy and you throw as hard as he does, you're going to get some results. It's just kind of amazing to see somebody move into the starting rotation, be able to pretty much carry his velocity throughout that start, and have most of his success born off of just those two pitches.
3: Yeah, I call him a five-inning closer. You know, we, I had a long conversation with him. Uh, that turned into a story on The Athletic about, you know, could he do it as a two-pitch guy and not really go to this third pitch? And he said, well, I have goals for my pitches. Mm -hmm. You know, I want basically to get swings and misses. And since my pitches are so good at getting swings and misses, why should I throw something else for weak contact? And I think he's seen the light a little bit in terms of wanting to turn the lineup over. Just continually trying to strike every guy out. Uh, leads to higher pitch counts, leads to getting out of the game earlier. These are things that we can see in the numbers. I have some hope for the changeup. He's deadened it a little bit. There's a a lower velocity on it this year. It doesn't have great movement, but with the 10-plus mile-an-hour gap that he's has, uh, Stuff Plus says it's above uh, average for the first time in his career. So that's uh, maybe a legitimate third pitch for him as a kind of a straight change where he's just playing along with the velocity gap. Because it's coming in there now at 85, 86, and he sits nice 97.
2: Right, and he can really push triple digits, as we all know. And so that's something the hitter has to account for. And maybe it's not something he has to live and die by, but it is something to keep hitters off balance, and of course, that makes it just another weapon for a very well-rounded pitcher who already seems to have weaponized a couple of other pitches. Chatting with Eno Saris of The Athletic. Make sure you're following him on Twitter, at Eno Saris. He joins me on the WadeFord.com hotline here on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game on From the Diamond with Grant McCauley. Now, the Braves went healthy. They have a pretty capable rotation, but the one guy at the front of it has really transformed himself to one of the best pitchers in the league, and that, of course, is Max Freed, the Cy Young runner-up in the National League last year. Coming up, you heard a you know, good fastball, great curveball, but now it's multiple types of fastballs, the curveball, a slider, a changeup. He's doing so many different things as he attacks hitters, and I think all of this speaks to his success in becoming a truly well-rounded pitcher, and I would guess that that's what helped him go from a top prospect to a top starter in baseball.
3: Yeah, for me, the slider is such a big deal because if you look at where league averages and stuff plus, sliders are number one. You know, that seems weird. You're like, well, how's that league average then? It's because sliders do so well. And the reason I could tell you that I think I'm right about this and that Stuff Plus is right about this is every year the league throws more sliders.
2: Yeah, that's
3: true. <laughs> yep. And the results stay the same. It's still the best pitch in baseball, really. And so I think his curveball is great and his changeup is good. The fastballs have good velo. Stuff Plus doesn't love their shape. But him adding that slider was just huge. And I think the reason is you get in trouble sometimes with counts. And we've seen just from the research that the more, more movement you have, the larger the pitch is, the more movement it has, the harder it is to command. I mean, that just makes sense. Yeah. You know, like, would you rather try to, you know, dot a corner with a slider or a curveball or a fastball? Right? That's the whole kind of idea of a fastball. Uh, so the slider sits in between the secondaries and the fastballs as a pitch that pitchers can command. And so if you get stuck in a count, 2-0, 3-0, you really don't want to throw a fastball anymore. Or you want to at least have the hitter thinking it could be another pitch. You don't want to get keyhold in this game because everyone's yeah. getting their A swings off. They're trying to hit homers. And if you get keyhold and they say, this guy can't command anything but his fastball, I know what's coming. That's ding-dong city. <laughs> yeah, it definitely
2: is. And Max Free doesn't find himself making too many stays there. And I think another thing that makes him as impressive as he is, is he has all of these pitches. He commands them all well, and he'll throw them in any count. I think that that may be as much of a maybe a Huge. mental hurdle for pitchers to trust that, hey, I can utilize this pitch, I can use it to get ahead, I can use it to put somebody away, I can use it to get back into account if I need to, to set up something else. I think that Max has just done such a great job of just really studying his craft and always trying to find that one more thing that he can do, and I think that's what sets him apart from a lot of pitchers who might struggle to just add a pitch or two to their arsenal or really to command a third pitch, whereas Max Freed, he's sitting there with about half a dozen in his back pocket looking to throw them in any count.
3: Yeah, I think it's what scouts refer to as a good feel for spin command is a big open topic in baseball research circles, how valuable it is, how much difference there is between uh, the best commanders and the worst. I think that as a fan, we think that, you know, there are these command artists at the top and then there's guys who can't command it and there's this gulf of a difference between them. But when we've looked at it, uh, even the best commanders miss their targets by 10 to 11 inches on
2: average. Wow. You learn all kinds of things when you get inside of <laughs> these numbers. And goodness knows we can track just about everything down to the quarter inch at this point. He's Eno Saris of The Athletic. Joining me here on From the Diamond with Grant McCauley on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. As you go through the Braves rotation, and with respect to some of the younger starters that we've already mentioned, I mean, Max Fried is kind of in the prime of his career. Spencer Strider just getting started. Kyle Wright really had a breakthrough season last year. But the elder statesman of this rotation is Charlie Morton, once a Braves prospect came all the way home after just reinventing himself as a power pitcher late in his career. And then last year, for whatever reason, and I know he had the broken leg, obviously, in the World Series, and we had the lockout, and maybe he wasn't able to rehab and all of those things, but Charlie still threw 170-plus innings last year. He still struck out 200 batters. He hasn't lost his velocity. He still has a great curveball. And I say all that to say the results for Charlie Morton last year, and even in the first handful of innings this year, just don't quite look the same. So I was wondering, you know, as you look inside what Charlie Morton does so well— as the power pitcher that he is with that dynamite, fastball, curveball combo in particular, what do you think's going on with Charlie Morton?
3: He still has the elite curveball. And I say that because Adam Wainwright had some ups and downs at the end of his career and dips in velo and still had that elite curveball to use as a foundation. Mm-hmm. And so I, I actually do think he'll right the ship at the same time there's just subtle differences in the movement of his fastballs that have affected him over time. Right now, uh, his four seam is not getting as much ride as it used to, and his sinker is getting too much ride. Okay. It's, and and he doesn't emphasize the sinker, but it doesn't sink like it's not right now sinking like it used to. And so that does have cascading effects because everything sort of is defined off the fastball. Everything starts with the fastball. so. I think it's as simple as it's harder for him to get to his best fastball, okay. that he used to have in the past. And yet we've seen from Adam Wainwright that if you can command your pitches and you can play around when you've got that elite yacker in your back pocket, mm-hmm. it's all about, you know, making them anticipate it and throwing something else, or throwing it when they don't anticipate it. It's just playing around, "I know I have this hammer, and when am I going to use the hammer? And Wainwright did it with 87 and 88, so I think Morton can do it with 94
2: and 95. Yeah, one would imagine. That's a pretty good weapon to still have as you approach the age of 40. The Braves have Charlie Morton around for 2023. they got an option for him for 2024, obviously. They have a vested interest in not only his success this year, but maybe keeping him around for a while because of that late career just renaissance that he has had. And he's not a bad guy to have around your staff just to talk about pitching on a daily basis, just always fun and always insightful to talk to Charlie. Now a young pitcher, and we love comeback stories. And I want to wrap up with this one because we're hoping that we're nearing the finish line on this one. Michael Soroka, the twice torn Achilles has not made a major league start since August of 2020. We're going on three years. You know, it's crazy to think he's only 25 years old The arm is not what has taken the brunt of this injury period of his career. It does look like in AAA he's still got the stuff. And I think, if anything, it's just building up pitch count innings and kind of knocking the rust off, if you will. What, if anything, have you seen from Michael Soroka as he has looked to get himself back to hopefully being the guy that the Braves had in their rotation as their opening day starter back in 2020?
3: Well, one thing I noticed is uh, it looks like he's uh, working with uh, Quadzilla's trainer. Yeah. I mean, his uh, <laughs> he's got a thick lower half now, a little bit yeah, thicker than I remember it. But uh, that might just be part of the process of coming back from these leg injuries. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's a good foundation, literally, to mm-hmm. sort of the lower half. Uh, but also, uh, I was very intrigued to see that his stuff plus numbers were top 10 in AAA. I now have AAA uh, numbers for athletic subscribers. Uh, otherwise, Stuff Plus, you can find on fan graphs for mm-hmm. the major leaguers. And in particular, one thing that's cool about Stuff Plus is that it comes online really fast, it's predictive and powerful in really small samples, and particularly for fastballs and breaking balls. And so when I see that his fastball is way above average for Stuff Plus, and his slider is functioning really well by that number as well. I said, that's a really good foundation. Change-ups, for whatever reason, are still tricky. Uh, his is looking like average, but it could still be a plus pitch for him. So mm-hmm. I think he's a guy with three plus pitches. The sinker, I think he's is going to be useful for him, uh, even if it's around average, because it's uh, just another look. So I, I see a, a good four-pitch mix. He's always had great command. Yeah. And the command is, I think, something that will separate him. When he comes up with this good stuff, and good command, and hopefully, you know, a better foundation. I think he'll really surprise some people, or just remind some people.
2: I think that's a great way to put it, and fingers crossed that that's going to be happening sooner than later. I think that with a couple of three more starts at A Gwinnett, and with the news of Ian Anderson being out for the year, and some of the other question marks in the Braves' rotation, he's the next guy up. He needs, yeah.
3: yeah I think it's close to them needing it. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I prefer him to. Uh, you know, the other guys have come up and, and, and tried and done their best. But I, for me, Soroka is a step above.
2: Yeah, I think he is, too. And I think that he could do a lot of, as you said, reminding people exactly what Michael Soroka was pre the injuries. He's Eno Siris of The Athletic. Follow him on Twitter at Eno Make sure you check out all the great stuff he's got for you on The Athletic. And you also have a podcast for The Athletic.
3: Yeah, That's right. If you want to listen before you take the leap and subscribe to The Athletic, you can hear us on Rates and Barrels. That's for free on all the different podcast platforms. That's a sort of fantasy aim show. So if you don't play fantasy, I have a show called The 3-0 Show that's also out there. You can find me, Britt Giroli, and Derek Van Riper on that one.
2: Nope, Very exciting. Thanks for letting us know about those. I'm going to go ahead and make sure that I am subscribed and have those notifications turned on, too, so I'll always know. Eno, I appreciate all the time and look forward to chatting with you again soon. Thanks for having me. What a great discussion about the Braves starting rotation with Eno Saris of The Athletic. Make sure you're following him on Twitter and subscribe to those podcasts as well. When we come back, we'll take a look at what else is happening around the world of baseball, and we'll do it next right here on From the Diamond with Grant McCauley on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game.
0: Taking a look around the league with more of our From the Diamond on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game.
2: And welcome back in Hour 2 of From the Diamond with Grant McCauley on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. We're live from the Kia Studios. It was great to have Eno Saris check in from The Athletic, give us some real insight on what makes the Braves rotation so special and maybe a little bit of insight on how it could get a little bit better. We did find out after the Braves got done sweeping away the Kansas City Royals on Sunday with a 5-4 comeback win. Props to Vaughn Grissom for the game-winning hit in that one. We also found out that the Braves will be having Max Freed back from the injured list to start game one against the San Diego Padres on Monday. So that's some great news for the Braves rotation. It'll be good to have Max Freed back in the saddle and hopefully this little setback early in the season as Brian Snitker said last week will be the only setback that Freed has to deal with all year long. Now it's at this time that we like to kind of shift our focus and take a look at what else is happening across Major League Baseball but those are some pretty noteworthy things happening during the show here on a Sunday afternoon. Braves sweeping away the Kansas City Royals now 12 and 4 second-best record in baseball, best record in the National League. I believe they lead the National League in run scores. run, sc- uh, run scored at this point, and they are also the first-place team in the NL East, which is a place that they would like to hold on to for as long as possible all season and ride that baby on into October. But across the rest of baseball, there were some very interesting things going on, and I think we saw one of the best moments of the early season. I always look forward to this. It's Jackie Robinson Day and that's April 15th each and every season. And you, you may notice one of the many things about it, besides the uh, very many tributes and, and segments that are done as part of broadcasts, I know that Bally Sports did a great one for the Braves uh, where they had the broadcasters visiting the Negro Leagues Museum up in Kansas City as well. I thought that was a really, really nice touch. But as you look back on what Jackie Robinson was able to do and what he accomplished 76 years ago on Saturday, I think that it's – one of the great things that baseball does is honor Jackie Robinson and honor its history. And in doing so, you look at all the players taking the field where number 42 and you might be wondering, well, I thought number 42 is retired. It's a cool tribute. But how exactly did this come along? Because you know, I don't know the last few years we see baseball come up with ideas that aren't necessarily everybody's cup of tea. But this one, this one hits the mark. This is right there. Center bullseye. Very cool tribute to Jackie Robinson. But you might not know that Ken Griffey Jr. was the man who came up with this idea. And it started back in his Mariners days because the uniform number had been retired and Griffey had been wearing it on April the 15th a couple of times with the Mariners before the universal retirement of the number. And of course, this was the first number and the only number in baseball that has been universally retired. And for all the reasons I just spoke about with Jackie breaking the color barrier for the Dodgers in 1947. But what exactly inspired Griffey to get The number 42 onto the backs of virtually every other player. Well, you might not know this, but he actually had some help from former commissioner Bud Seeley. Take a listen to this from MLB Network.
0: I did it for selfish reasons. Uh, I wanted to honor the man that, you know, my dad idolized. And so I was like, all right, let me. Figure out a way that I can do it. So I called Commissioner Siddeley at home and he says, Hey, give me a day. I want to call Rachel. I was like, Okay. And he calls me back the next day. He said, uh, Do you mind if everybody wears? I go, like, oh, Absolutely not. Just be an honor. But for me, I did it for selfish reason because I wanted to honor him. How you honor somebody is wear their number.
2: Yeah, I think that that's absolutely true. That's the voice of King Griffey Jr., a man known, the kid, for wearing number 24. Well, he reversed that number to honor Jackie Robinson wearing number 42 a couple of times with the Mariners. But then, as we know, in 1997, that number 42, on the 50th anniversary of Jackie Robinson breaking the color barrier, it was retired. Now, the Rachel that was mentioned there is Jackie Robinson's widow, Rachel Robinson. And there were uh, very many years where there really wasn't, I guess, a standard that was set for, well, who's going to wear it? You know, there was somebody from each team that could be designated to wear it. Was it just going to be African-American players that chose to wear it? Or could everybody pay tribute to Jackie Robinson? And I think this is one of those bigger-than-baseball kind of things where, I think everybody should be able to. So a really cool thing that happened out of Ken Griffey Jr., jokingly, tongue-in-cheek, for selfish reasons, he wanted to honor Jackie Robinson. And he was a second-generation baseball player, was junior. Of course, his dad, a part of the Big Red Machine, grew up idolizing Jackie Robinson. So a really cool tribute that was paid there as well. So as we saw Jackie Robinson Day happening over the weekend, always a cause, I think, to just reflect back and, and look at the great history of our game and honor somebody who meant as much to baseball as Jackie Robinson meant. Now, when we flash forward to 2023 and see kind of where baseball is trending, by and large, I still enjoy watching the game. It's moving a little faster this year. I think we all know about that. Maybe it's moving a little too fast for some moments because I will say this as a baseball traditionalist, I'm getting used to the pitch clock. I don't hate it. I think that there are some tweaks that could be made, but I also think that uh, common sense probably needs to prevail at some time. And one of the places that common sense would have been great to have on hand uh, was when the Dodgers welcomed the Chicago Cubs to Chavez Ravine, and among the Cubs coming on back there was Cody Bellinger, who'd spent the first, what, six, seven years of his career with the Dodgers, so the fans, well, they tried to honor him, and then take a listen to what happened. Hey, here the ovation for Cody Bellinger. For Cody, the official ovation was before the game. They played a video of his Dodger highlights and got a standing ovation from this Dodger Stadium crowd on his first trip back here and he got a pitch clock violation. Come on, Jim, read the room. That's Joe Davis of Dodgers Television, and he was talking about Jim Wolfe, the home plate umpire, who I know they got to call this stuff by the letter of the law, but giving someone a pitch clock violation when they're just getting a standing ovation from the fans that have been cheering for them for a number of years, it ain't going to happen every at-bat. It's a one-time, one-off thing. It is April the what? 15th, 14th, whatever the case is, this past week when that went down, but it just absolutely unbelievable. That was the 14th. That was on Friday night. Just in case you're wondering, Bellinger went down 0 1 in the county, ended up grounding out the first. It was one for four, had a double in the game, scored a run, and the Cubs picked up an 8 2 win over the Dodgers, but I don't know, Dom, any thoughts on umpires who are calling pitch clock violations during moments in which the paying customer is telling you right. we like what's happening?
3: Uh, just like Joe Davis said there on the call,
2: read the room. Read the
3: room. Read the room. Like, and this is one of the things that's annoying and, and one of the big criticisms is that sometimes it feels like umpires, referees just can't help themselves and they just
2: have to make the moment about them. We have a phrase for that in baseball. It's called the ump show. And yes. even trends on Twitter. You'll see it when <laughs> yes. guys are thrown out for no apparent reason yep. or other such things happen. And you just kind of wonder, why is that happening that way? This is not about them. And I've yep. heard, I think it was Skip Carey all the way back in the day, making some remark about, oh, well, you know, 42,000 people paid to see this guy call a baseball game exactly. here tonight. So he's going to give them their money's <laughs> worth. And of course, it's just a, a big joke. But be that as it may, uh, just one of those moments where, you know, Cody Bellinger, He wasn't with the Dodgers for 20 years. It wasn't, you know, the heartwarming return that maybe even that Andrew McCutcheon got in rejoining the Pirates a little bit earlier this year. But regardless, the fans were having a moment there. They were trying to share their appreciation with a player that meant a lot to them. And that player got a pitch clock violation for it. So there you have it. Meanwhile, the Tampa Bay Rays, well, they were not letting the new rules bother them at all. And a lot of people thought maybe they would because the Rays are such a forward-thinking club. Well, they decided, hey, we're just going to go out. And we're going to outscore our opponents every single night. We're going to hit a ton of home runs, and we're going to win a bunch of baseball games. They won 13 in a row before they ran into the Toronto Blue Jays and finally lost. Rays tied the record set by the Brewers in 1987 and the Atlanta Braves in 1982. We didn't have a lot to cheer for in the 80s, but everybody always talked about the magical start to 1982, winning 13 in a row. I've had an opportunity to talk to several Braves on that club. and Odell Murphy I've had on the show before and said, yeah, we loved starting 13-0, but, man, we were not very good after that. We played about 500 <laughs> ball say, to get to kind of back our way into the playoffs. They did win the National League West that year, but they did make it into the playoffs. Uh, but 13-0 is a record that has now been done by three teams. Rays, though, they were stopped by the Toronto Blue Jays in a 6-3 loss day before yesterday. So it's not going to last all year. You're not going to win 162 of them, but a 13-0 start in a division like the American League East is a pretty good way to start out your season. Now, the National League East has a few things going on, and one of them is the New York Mets dealing with injuries to their, I don't want to say elderly, but their older pitching staff. They are already without Justin Verlander, who should be back at some point this month, at least that's the plan. Now they could be without Max Scherzer, or at least they are going to be a little bit concerned about it. They're pushing back his upcoming start for this weekend back to Wednesday. Scherzer talked about this a little bit with the New York press that This is an injury that he's kind of familiar with. So take a listen to Max Scherzer, and then we'll kind of parse through what was, uh, I think, something that Mets fans, and of course the Mets themselves, probably didn't want to be thinking about, which is an injured Max Scherzer in April.
0: An MRI, nothing. Like, I I know exactly what this is. You know, it just needs a little time. That's it. Your scapula, maybe? It's like almost south of that. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So nothing. And you had this in 2018? 2019. It's similar to what I was doing in 2019, you know. I respect it, know what it is, but I know how to, you know, know that if you just give it a little rest, get out of it, you know, it goes away.
2: Well, that's Max Scherzer talking to SNY and posted the video that it actually went on at the Coliseum, I believe, was where he was being interviewed. And one of the top comments underneath the tweet of that video was, where was this interview held in a dungeon? Because the background <laughs> yeah. Scherzer, he looks like he's trying to escape prison or something. It looks like it might've been from the Michael Bay movie, The Rock, but, Either way, he's not on Alcatraz yet, but if he gets put on the injured list, it's going to feel like for Max Scherzer, a very fierce competitor, that he has been sent to Alcatraz. He's had to deal with some injuries the past few years, and the Mets certainly didn't want to hear about or think about one in the month of April, but you do want to rest things at this point so you don't turn a little thing into a big thing. And when you're talking about the $43 million they owe Max Scherzer and uh, Justin Verlander, who's already landed on the injured list to start the year, that's the kind of thing that could concern the Mets were this to become a trend. Speaking of injuries and NLE's teams, as we continue here on From the Diamond with Grant McCauley on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game, Philadelphia Phillies off to what I would say is exactly the opposite of the kind of start they wanted to this season. One of the big things they've been without is the biggest bat in their lineup, and that's Bryce Harper. He, though, has gone to the Phillies brass and said, hey, when I come back, not only just as a DH where he could return conceivably in the next month to six weeks, somewhere in that range, But instead of going back out to the outfield later this year, once he's cleared to start throwing and getting over the Tommy John surgery that he had, he might actually play first base. And this could be a long-term piece for the Phillies because Reese Hoskins, who blew out a knee and is not going to play this year, he's a free agent after this season. So you've got Bryce Harper under contract for quite a while. Could Bryce Harper become the Philadelphia Phillies first baseman for not just the present but also the future over the term of that contract? That is something that we could find out as well. Uh, Sticking with injuries here and hopefully nothing serious. And as it turned out, it wasn't. But a fan turned himself in in the uh, Denver area after deciding that he would go to a Rockies game, head out to Coors Field. I don't know how much of the product that he had, but he decided that he would jump on the dugout and tackle their mascot, who's a Triceratops. And if you're wondering why, it's because there are some fossils in the area of Triceratops. And that's how they got this little mascot, little purple Triceratops named Dinger, just trying to have a good time on the dugout. Gets tackled by a fan. Uh, The mascot was a little knocked around, but fortunately, nothing major. The Denver police, though, didn't think this was a very funny matter and put a $2,000 reward on the fan who did that. He ended up turning himself in after the video went viral. And, hey, look, you go to a baseball game or a sporting event or someplace where there's cameras galore and people filming things, you never know what's going to get caught on camera. And that was uh, the case. Uh, But the fan, Kenneth Sunley, a 45-year-old, was cited for assault and disturbing the peace after turning himself into authorities on Friday. Uh, One other one in Philadelphia. Let's flash back to that. A food fight went on on Dollar Hot Dog Night. That was not what the Phillies had in mind for that particular (laughs) promotion, but if you want to search for some fun videos, just look up Philadelphia Phillies food fight, and you can have uh, pHs on all of those, I think, to really get the branding correct. But multiple videos showed the fans in a massive food fight and a sold-out crowd as part of the promotion on that night Concession stands were wrapped around the concourse as people were waiting a long time to get their hands on these hot dogs. And once they were handed out, uh, they were not consumed. Instead, they were thrown at each other uh, for very long periods during the game. Hundreds of people were doing this, so it's not like security can throw out an entire section of fans at a baseball game either.
3: That's always the game plan, right, is, hey, if we're going to do something bad, all of us do something bad. You know, we can't all get in trouble. Yeah,
2: it's better than some of the Phillies fans that threw batteries at players at Veterans Stadium. It's certainly better than when Turner Field was littered, the playing field was, with the infield fly rule game. You're not throwing anything out there that may necessarily injure anybody, but it did turn into Animal House, apparently in the stands at Philadelphia at Citizens Bank Park. And I want to put a bow on this segment as our look around the big leagues with a question that is almost rhetorical at this point. How good is Shohei Ohtani? Well, he's this good. This is the fact. Opponents are batting 100 against Ohtani when he takes the mound this year. Ohtani came into Sunday batting 313. This guy's doing things the likes of which we have never seen in the modern game. And if you're looking for historical precedent – You're still on a list that includes Babe Ruth and basically nobody else. When we come back, we will turn our attention to some more MLB topics as I welcome Melanie Newman of Masson and MLB Network to the show. We'll talk a little bit about the AL East and some of the other rules changes for this year, among other things, as we continue on From the Diamond with Grant McCauley on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game.
0: Back to Grant McCauley for more From the Diamond on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game.
2: Welcome back to From the Diamond with Grant McCauley here on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. I want to take a broader look across what's going on in Major League Baseball, and to help me do that, I want to bring in a very good friend of mine. Her name is Melanie Newman. You can find her on the Orioles broadcast for Masson, also on MLB Network, and follow her on Twitter at Melanie Lynn. Inn is where you can find her. Well, Melanie, it's great to catch up with you. I know that you stay busy all season long, and I'm glad we can find a spot on the schedule for both of us to make this happen.
1: Listen, when we've come from giving play-by-play of making a chicken salad in the bowels <laughs> of the Brave Stadium, you do things like this that are a little more relevant.
2: Well, we certainly do, and I would say that your play play-by-play over the last, what, two, three more years now in the big leagues, and even beyond that, I, I think that we have come a long way from chicken salad sandwiches, but we're going to make some chicken salad out of the first couple of weeks of this baseball <laughs> season, which by and large has actually been pretty good. But I want to start with the Orioles because that's you know where you're mainly focused on as part of the broadcast team there, and I would say that the Orioles are part of what should be another great divisional race up and down. All five clubs I think are going to be competitive, Maybe Boston is bringing up the rear, but you've got 500 teams in this division that are all of a sudden, somehow, five games out of first place a couple of weeks in, thanks to what the Rays are doing. But I think more so for the Orioles to focus on that. Baseball fans in Baltimore have to be feeling a little bit more upbeat these days after what this club did last year to really get back on the map.
1: You know, and and I think that shows in the attendance so far, Grant, because that was kind of what we would see is the home opener would always draw because historically that's always been a big deal for Orioles fans. But then after that, things would get a little quiet and and I kind of found it, you know, unfortunate overall that it would be that way because the guys are definitely impacted by that. They see Mm -hmm. that. So to see them come around this year, they know the prospects because we've done such a good job of keeping the farm system at the forefront of everybody's minds over the last couple of seasons. Obviously, when you get high-profile guys like Gunnar Henderson and Adley Rutschman, they're going to follow them naturally without our help. But they finally come to that moment of realizing this is where the corner is turning. Now, the tough part about that is, is we all know sophomore seasons for rookies are the hardest seasons. It's right up there with that double-A jump that you make for mm-hmm. the first time because the book is out. They know what you can handle and what you can't, and they're going to go after it. So it's going to be up to them to see how much – they can respond and what they can handle in terms of a workload to come after this, this year, because we also know the AL East never rests. The blue Jays have gotten way better this year. The Yankees are the Yankees every year. And even when Boston is supposed to have a down year, they are just annoying enough to never let you really slip away. And of course, then you have the rays who decided they're going to throw it back to 1983 uh, (laughs) and start out the season undefeated. So it's just going to be such a mixed bag this year. I think of what we get. And once again, it's going to prove that it's like the sec. It just always keeps the AL East at the top.
2: It really does. And let's talk about the Rays for a moment. Then I want to get back into the things that is going so well for Baltimore, the many things that are, but the Rays are boat racing everybody out of the gate, the Yankees, blue Jays, Orioles, all over 500, as I mentioned, heading into the weekend. We're only two weeks in most close to be feeling pretty good. If they're over 500 after the first couple of weeks, at least they're off to an okay start. But as I mentioned, you've got teams that are five or six games out of first place already because of what the Rays are doing, and then you start looking at, historically, this kind of start. You don't see this thing too often, but the Tampa Bay Rays, they always seem to find a way to be in the middle of everything going on in the AL East.
1: You know, they do, and and I think hats off to them because we keep talking about all these new rule changes, and they were kind of the butt of the joke when the rule changes happened was, Uh oh, good luck watching them try to do anything now that you can't do anything and here comes Kevin Cash and the rest of that absolutely deep analytics department to show you that they can adjust and if they can't really use the shift or the lack of it to their advantage they're just gonna hit home runs against everybody now Um, I think watching what certain adjustments have been made we started to see Brandon Lau turn the corner and become a power guy last year but the fact that now you see it in the one through nine Wander Franco seems a little more settled as well
2: Chatting with Melanie Newman, of course, she's part of the Orioles broadcast. You can find her there also on MLB Network, and she's on Twitter at Melanie In She is with me on the WadeFord.com hotline on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game on From the Diamond with Grant McCauley. With all of that out of the way, let's talk a little bit about Baltimore and the big things they got out of Adley Rushman in 2022. Rookie of the Year runner-up, thanks to the Julio Rodriguez show that went on out in Seattle, but I think Adley many years would have won that award were it not for what J-Rod was doing When you go through a rebuild, as you mentioned, you want to see your club draft and sign and develop stars. Rushman was the number one overall pick in 2019, and he most certainly is looking the part of a future star and a cornerstone for this franchise.
1: You know what I love the most about it, Grant, is he's just not phased by it. And that starts with the way that his parents have raised him. Very fortunate to get to talk to them pretty frequently about it. But this is just a humble family. I mean, this is a family with their grandfather in multiple Athletic Hall of Fames, not just in Oregon. And Adley learned how to be a catcher from his dad. They're really grassroots. It's been so impressive to me because that's where it gives him that ability to come out every day and not be faced to step up in the ninth inning and (laughs) to get his first professional walk-off win with a home run Mm -hmm. to center field because why not make it better than that? And I think that's where the work ethic is really going to be okay. And he's not going to be bothered if he has to have an extra workload because he's just always been a guy that keeps his head down. He doesn't listen to the noise he doesn't really buy into the rankings of the team either. And if the team isn't winning, then his personal attributes don't mean anything to him. And Mm -hmm. and he'll tell you that every single night while also letting you get an inside look at the preparation that he's making. And that's from the pitchers to guys like James McCann, having another veteran with him. Mm -hmm. He's embraced that he's never once come out and believed that he's a finished product. He knows that he has more to do. And my favorite anecdote, I think just to drive home how dedicated he is, is again, a very close knit family guy. And when his parents would come visit him, you know, they'd stay with him as one does. And it got about halfway through the season. And he finally said, listen, um, I love you, but we've got to get you in a hotel or something because I'm changing <laughs> my routine that I follow every single uh-huh. day to a T when you're here. And I just feel like that's affecting my game at throwing it off. And of course wow. they were wonderful about it. And they laughed and said, absolutely. We don't want to get in the way of your job. Um, we will find a solution to this, but just the most well-balanced athlete I think I've come across on a personal level in my lifetime.
2: Yeah, when you check all the boxes, not only what you do on the field, but the makeup and how you treat people and how you do everything and what you can add to a club and the dynamic from a character standpoint in that clubhouse, people might roll their eyes at that sometimes, but it's all in the mix there. And when you have a player that can become, again, a foundational piece or a fixture for a franchise for a very long period of time. And again, it does feel like ali Rushman can do that. He's not alone though, as the Orioles do have a number of other exciting players. You mentioned Gunnar Henderson. What's the big focus for the Orioles this year as they try to not just replicate their success of surprising some people in 2022, but take that next step forward because last year now is just that it's last year.
1: Yeah. I, I think there is a part of it that is insulating the clubhouse and it's different from years past where these guys were kind of in between being veterans and rookies and, just trying to let them know that it was going to be okay, even if they were not going to be sniffing the playoffs. And this year that insulation turns towards not letting these guys feel the pressure that, okay, we were a game out of the playoffs last year. We have to go in this year. Obviously they want it. That was the discussion all of spring training. Not one guy I talked to did not mention playoffs when I spoke to him. And I think that's where you see pressing a little bit. There've been some defensive mistakes from guys who, have been very rarely making a mistake. You're talking about one in a season, and there have already been several through the first two weeks, maybe not being as aggressive as they should be on the base path, second-guessing themselves. Obviously, that does not include Jorge Mateo and Cedric Mullins because they're taking off whenever they can. Mm -hmm. And then you get young guys like Gunnar Henderson, who you just mentioned at the plate. Brandon Hyde said he wants him to be a little more aggressive than he is right now, especially when it's a fastball, especially in an 0-1 count. He's kind of laying off a little more than what would be typical of his style. He knows his zone. And I think right now he's just a little too wrapped up in it. And they said our number one thing is to not talk about baseball with him. Talk about anything other than that, because we can see it with him that that is all he's thinking about 24-7. And to his credit, his biggest focus is, I just can't get my offense and my defense on the same brainwave. I have to keep them separate. And the defense has shown out, but you can see it at the plate you know, taking swings where he shouldn't laying off of fastball counts, where he should be absolutely destroying them. And that'll come with time. We'll
2: chat with Melanie Newman of Orioles broadcast and MLB network. Make sure you're following her on Twitter at Melanie Lynn Inn is where you can find her. She joins me on from the diamond with Grant McCauley here on sports radio, 92, nine, the game. I want to take a look at some bigger picture MLB stuff, because as you do spend time at MLB network, and you're there this weekend with an eye across all of baseball, let me ask you one baseball professional to another, How are you feeling about the new rules and particularly the pace of play so far this season?
1: Well, um, I don't think a lot of people also know that I basically grew up with these rules. This was my other job when I was working my way through the minor leagues was running all of the clockwork when we were experimenting with it in the fall league. So I say this as somebody who came in as an absolute purist of the game. I was not about introducing a clock to a place where a clock had never been. Mm -hmm. That felt sacrilegious to me, and I didn't understand why we needed it. Especially at the minor league level where it's meant to be a little more raw. But as I got into it a little more and I kind of realized it was at the point of I could get in on something that was going to be happening regardless or I could be ignorant to it and really not understand it by the time it got here. And sure enough, we started this in 2014. I thought it would have landed in the big leagues a little sooner than that, but I'm glad they took their time with it. And to see it now, it was definitely needed. And I thought as well-spoken as Rich Hill was about his thoughts on it and that he did not appreciate it at all, for the comment to be made that if the game time was an issue, they should have been told. The game time has been a discussion at the forefront for at least five years now. This yeah. this is not yeah. news. I understand where maybe they want to make some concessions to it, change a few things. I think a game that's under two hours is a little bit ridiculous. And I absolutely do not agree that some people are responding by allowing alcohol sales until the final out. I think that's a little irresponsible. But overall, when you look at what's going on, the increase of action in a game is up tremendously. The hits are up. Everything is moving in the right direction to where this is becoming a must-see sport again. And by the way, we're not changing the game from its identity because if you look at baseball in the 70s, This is what it was. You had the frequent action. This was the average time of game. We're really just removing a lot of the extra that has been added over the years. I get where some of that extra time was added in, but at the same time, let's get back to business and let's give the fans a product that they can actually stay engaged with.
2: Yeah, and I think that's been the biggest thing. And with the death of the complete game and a lot of other changes to specialization in the bullpen and kind of the three true outcomes really rearing their head in a much more exaggerated fashion in the last decade, especially in baseball... The game is going to change. It is going to evolve over time. And I've heard this saying, and I think it's true. Nobody really likes change. They like improvement. So you got to sell them on the fact that it's improving <laughs> in order to make them feel a little bit better about it. And maybe that is the case. Now, Melanie, as baseball evolves and changes rules, another big step for the league is to get in front of more fans. Now, I'm not going to discuss blackouts right now. I don't think that those are particularly great, but let's leave that for another time. But expansion of Major League Baseball That would be one way to get in front of some new fans. I'm really interested to see the potential sites for this. Utah has made some headlines this week. They're making a push. We've heard Nashville, Las Vegas, some other cities have been mentioned here. We haven't had expansion in 25 years, but it does seem like we could have more MLB teams sooner than later.
1: And I will touch on one thing, Grant, just because I learned it today and it was profound to me. On average, in St. Louis, this was the example market, only 15% of residents in St. Louis have access to watch the Cardinals. Wow. Uh, Exactly. Like, I can't not share that fact, but Mike Farron on uh, Network Radio actually brought that up earlier today, and it made my jaw physically drop. So I think when you talk about growing the game and where that's changing, it's absolutely going to happen, especially when you look at the fact that the league could take over broadcasting and lift a lot of this. So when you look Mm -hmm. at that expansion – you start to see everything moving forward now that fans will have more access to actually watch their favorite teams. I still think you have to resolve Tampa and Oakland first before yeah. we even talk about anywhere else. And and what Dallas Braden was saying to me the other day was, one day it's like 100% we're going to Vegas, which is fine. We've talked to a lot of people. They seem to have come around to it. And, you know, the next day you wake up and we're definitely staying in Oakland. They're building a new complex. Everything's great. So they just don't know which way they're going. And right. meanwhile with Tampa, been going on the for discussions a while. there, yeah, and the discussions with Tampa have been quiet, but it's sad to me that they are in the middle of a, an absolutely historic win streak, and I don't think their attendance has topped 17,000 that is a huge loss. I do not understand why people are not getting to these games, unless it is the fact that getting over that bridge that you and I know so well Mm -hmm. from Tampa to Mm -hmm. St. Pete or Sarasota to St. Pete can be tough. So I I would really be more encouraging of seeing those resolve first. However, in honoring this, I don't know that Utah has a chance at all. This seems not only last minute, when you look at the grassroots efforts that have been there for Nashville and Portland since day one, Mm -hmm. It's also a smaller market than a place like Nashville, so that would seem a little tougher to me. Now, if I had to look at the West, I would say it comes down absolutely between Portland and Vancouver. I think Portland does have it against them that they've already lost two minor league teams, and I think that's going to be a strike against Portland. Um, I personally, selfishly, would also love to be able to travel to Vancouver in a season, because when do we not love seeing it? (laughs) Now, on the East Coast, Montreal would love this, but I also think they're very aware that Again, they are also on the outside. Mm-hmm. I would put them as a runner-up to either Nashville or Charlotte. They have bigger markets. Again, they've had those grassroots efforts in from the start. Their names have been at the top of the list for a very long time, and that's where I would put it on the East Coast is between those two. And if not Charlotte, then the Raleigh-Durham triangle.
2: Yeah, it's going to be really interesting to see you know which ones of these markets are able to make that big push, get over the hump, and potentially get a major league club. I'm of the mind that maybe Montreal should have never moved, but, you know, we don't have a time machine, so that's probably not going to change anything. (laughs) I am really glad that the Tampa Bay Rays and that little plan of playing half their games in Montreal and half in Tampa Bay was not a thing that came to pass. That kind of galaxy brain thinking I don't think is helping any fan base anywhere. But again, I digress. Melanie, I really appreciate all this time. We got to cover an awful lot of stuff, and I would love to have you back on the show throughout the season whenever time allows.
1: Grant, we will make it happen.
2: Again, she's Melanie Newman. You can find her on Orioles broadcast for Masson on MLB Network and on Twitter at Melanie Lynn N. When we come back, there's more Braves and baseball talk for you right here on From the Diamond with Grant McCauley on Sports Radio 929 The Game.
0: Baseball. Talking Braves and beyond. Baseball. With From the Diamond.
2: Welcome back in. This is From the Diamond, wrapping things up here in Hour 2 of the show. I'm Grant McCauley, live from the Kia Studios on a Sunday evening. As we look to close things out, maybe the way the Braves close things out, we'll just sweep up the studio on our way out of here. The Braves sweeping things away in Kansas City. And by things, I mean the Royals and three more wins on the board for the Braves, who are now 12-4 and on the year. That's the best record in the National League, second in baseball and second to that Tampa Bay Rays Club we were just talking about, all they did was begin their year 13-0. If you're scoring at home, that's pretty good. Uh, but the Braves are 12-4, 8-1 now on the road. That's uh, uh, quite a departure from some of the road trips we've seen to start the season for the Braves in recent years. They just really couldn't seem to get their, you know, their, their feet under them a little bit, away from home. Not been the case thus far for the Atlanta Braves. Uh, Best record in the National League, as I mentioned, tops in the NL East. Second best record in baseball. 87 runs, by the way. Another good thing for teams who like to win a lot. Outscore your opponent by a lot. The Braves have done that most in the National League as far as runs are concerned. And their pitching staff is going to get a pretty big boost as we head into uh, the San Diego series. that begins on Monday, Because we found out, following the Braves' 5-4 comeback win over the Kansas City Royals, courtesy of Vaughn Grissom's game-winning hit. Well, Max Freed is going to jump back in the Braves rotation. He's going to do so on Monday against the Padres, so a bit of a homecoming for him. The former San Diego Padres draft pick traded to the Braves many moons ago. He'll be back in San Diego to get things started for Atlanta in that three-game series, so that's some good news for the Braves. Saw Spencer Strider, Charlie Morton also throwing in that series, so they're throwing three of their best pitchers that they possibly can against this Padres club, and we'll see how things are going to play out in a rematch of uh, two teams that we expect to be around come October, no doubt with the Braves, of course, in the East and sitting in the driver's seat. Padres going to be a tough team out in the National League West as well. You look at those standings, you expect the Padres to give the Dodgers a pretty good push. Early going in this one, they're kind of all jumbled up in the National League West. You've got the Arizona Diamondbacks with a slim lead over the Dodgers out there, but San Diego uh, just a 500 club right now, but I think we've already seen. They're better than a 500 club in terms of like, the power and the possibilities that they have for this season. So you don't want to overlook them whatsoever. Uh, Giants and Rockies, though, have kind of stumbled out of the gate. So uh, maybe it'll be uh, more than a two-team race out west. But you know the Dodgers, you know the Padres, uh, based on the money they spent and the personnel that they boast are both going to be around. So the Braves are going to test their medal against a club that took three out of four uh, when they were at home here on the recent homestand, the Padres kind of spoiled the party. Brady's got that walk-off in that first game, the home opener, and then they could not find the magic for the next three games. But uh, getting Max Fried back, of course, a big boost. You've got Kyle right back in your rotation. Five and two-thirds innings on Sunday for Wright. He didn't factor in the decision. Two runs allowed. I really had to rely on his breaking stuff. The fastball command I don't think is quite there for him, but it's just great to see Kyle pitch his way into the sixth inning, particularly after his first start. He ran up that pitch count so much so in that game against the Reds that he was out after three innings and 75 pitches. So, progress. We like to mark that as well. And I think that Kyle Wright, and just being back in this rotation in general, is going to help the Braves get a little bit more back to normal. But nothing bigger than adding Max Fried back into this starting five, which all of a sudden you start to look at this the way that the Braves kind of envisioned it coming into the season. You wanted to know you had Max Fried, and of course Kyle Wright in there, Spencer Strider, Charlie Morton, and then you're figuring out five. I didn't have time to get to this earlier in the show, but I didn't want to get out of here without talking about it. How about Bryce Elder? We talk about bright notes from the Braves, not just on this road trip, but to start 2023, he found himself optioned down to Gwinnett at the same time that Ian Anderson was sent out. And we're going to have to talk about some unfortunate news for Ian Anderson as well before we get out of here. But Bryce was the opening day starter for the Gwinnett Stripers. I was at that game. I thought, well, yeah, at some point, Bryce is going to get another opportunity. He pitched all right. And then come to find out, he got an opportunity pretty quickly. He's gotten three starts for the Braves thus far. Was not scored upon in his first two I gave up three runs in what was, I thought, a, a fine enough outing on a not-so-great night to pitch on Saturday for the Braves as they picked up another win against the Kansas City Royals. But three earned runs in 17 and two-thirds innings. That's an ERA of about one and a half. Only six walks against 17 strikeouts across those, again, nearly 18 innings. And this is a guy that now in 13 major league appearances, 12 of those starts, has an ERA under three. It's 276. And he just shows you every time he goes out there with the way that he's able to cut the ball, the way he's attacking the strike zone, This is a guy that I think you could turn to at the fifth spot of this rotation and be pretty happy with what he's going to give you every fifth day. I mean, Bryce Elder has really shown that this is the kind of quality depth that you're going to need to get through a season. He showed it last year, coming back up late and pitching a couple of big games. They weren't against the greatest opponents, but take nothing away from it. It is difficult to get out and navigate lineups in the big leagues, and Bryce Elder is showing he's capable of doing that. The fascinating thing about this, when we talk about returns, you get Kyle Wright back, you're getting Max Fried back. Michael Soroka has been pitching pretty well down in Triple A Gwinnett. Is he going to factor in this rotation at some point in the not too distant future? I still think, again, I talked about this earlier in the show, but I just wanted to touch on it again since we're talking about the starting five and we got a, a deep dive into this with Eno Saris of the Athletics. So if you missed that earlier in the show, I invite you to go over to wherever you get your podcast for the Odyssey app and subscribe to From the Diamond right there. But we know this is going to be a good rotation, but getting back Michael Soroka, wow. I mean, you forget he's only 25 years old because he hasn't pitched in the big leagues in nearly three years. But he was a Braves opening day starter in 2020, what we call the pre-Max Freed opening day start era because Max has started the last three. But those two guys were six in one hand, half a dozen in the other in terms of who could lead this staff. Would it be Max Freed? Would it be Michael Sirocco? Which one do you like? Well, good news. You got them both, and it'd be great to have them both back in the rotation at some point this season. Uh, I mentioned Ian Anderson, and this is definitely, we talked about injuries earlier on. Losing Orlando Arcia to the microfracture that landed him on the injured list. Well, it's going to be a bit longer road back for Ian Anderson. He has undergone Tommy John surgery and is going to miss the 2023 season. And that was revealed by the club this week when Orlando Arcia was put on the injured list. They also announced that the surgery had happened. So that comeback time from Tommy John surgery, which is a road so many pitchers have had to travel. I've talked about this a lot over the last week here on 92.9 The Game on the various shows with, you know, what does this mean for the Braves and their depth and, Obviously, what does it mean for the future of Ian Anderson? I think that at 24, 25 years old, by the time he gets back, a lot of careers in front of him. And when we talked to Brian Snitker about this, he said, look, it should let Ian know that there was nothing that he necessarily did wrong for this to happen. It's just the life of a pitcher sometimes. You have these injury setbacks. But this, again, is a surgery that so many pitchers have had. And if he's able to do this 12 to 14 months worth of rehab, get himself back in there, maybe this kind of serves as a bit of a reset for him in a lot of different ways because he's going to really be able to, and I know this is not the fun part of the road, it's a long part of the road, hone in on the things that he can do to really refine his craft. And if it wasn't working right now, and he did try to you know, incorporate a slider into his mix, and maybe that pitch didn't yield him the instant results that he wanted, but there hadn't been any indication of an elbow problem until that starting Gwinnett when he gave up the three home runs and was chased in the first inning. That was the first time the Braves had heard anything about an elbow, and unfortunately it ended up being ligament replacement surgery for him. So as we look at that for Ian Anderson in the big picture, it's a setback. But, or in the short term, I should say, it's a setback. In the big picture, he still has, I think, a lot of miles left to travel and you know, pitched some great games for the Braves. I mean, he was a World Series hero, a postseason hero for Atlanta. He's never lost a postseason start, ERA well under two. And if you remember, and I was there for game three of the World Series when Atlanta came back 1-1 with the Houston Astros and wanted to take their lead in that series, it was Ian Anderson with five no-hit innings as the Braves beat the Astros in game three to take control and eventually win that series. So uh, universally liked a lot of folks, myself included, I pulled for Ian to do the work, get back and hopefully resume his career and have more opportunities to create more memories for himself and for the Braves in the postseason in the future. Other injury updates, I guess, for this road trip. we got good news with Max Freed. we got not-so-good news about Ian Anderson for this season. Michael Harris, it doesn't sound like he's going to be ready to come off the injured list when eligible, which was going to be for this Padres series. But he may not be too far behind. But he does have to test himself out, not just working out on the field, doing a little bit of running and those kind of things. They've got to get him back in a cage, have him take some swings, because that's when you're really going to torque things if you've got a back injury, is swinging at 95-mile-an-hour fastballs, 95-plus. So we'll see if Harris can... Uh, Cross that hurdle and get himself back into the Braves lineup, perhaps by the time that it gets toward the weekend, maybe against Houston. And that might be an optimistic appraisal of the situation. We'll find out a little bit more as the club gets back in from San Diego. But it doesn't sound like Michael's going to be able to rejoin the club on the road trip, as many people might have hoped for. As you look at the Braves' road trip thus far, it's checked the boxes that they've needed to as far as wins are concerned. A lot of runs scored in the first couple of games, and the Braves have done this a lot of different ways this year. They can go out and they can get 10 or so runs a night, 10 in the first game against Kansas City, nine in the second game, added on a bunch late to kind of win that one running away. Then on Sunday, they got tested in a game in which they had it in hand until they didn't. Uh, Two-run homer off Michael Tonkin tied things up, and the Braves, it looked like, hey, maybe they're going to squander an opportunity to sweep a team that they should very much have the opportunity to sweep. Wasn't to be because Vaughn Grissom, Fresh up from AAA, he got to play the hero. Ozzie Albies, and I've talked about this, I've tweeted about this several times over the weekend. You look at the most encouraging things that you saw from the Braves and from any individual player in Kansas City in this series, the swings that Ozzie Albies was taking. I know he didn't get the big results in the first game, but he had three hits and four runs knocked in in the game on Saturday. And then he comes through with a big extra base hit to get himself on in the ninth inning, and Vaughn Grissom delivered the game-winning single or the go-ahead run turned in to be, or turned out to be the game-winning run. As the Braves grabbed that 5-4 victory and A.J. Mentor was able to come in and shut things down, that's what you need. Contributions from everybody. And I think when we talked about Vaughn Grissom, there was no question about offensively he was going to be able to chip in and do some things for this club. But great to see him getting that game-winning hit. I think that goes a long way for confidence. Not necessarily have to translate to anything in particular on the field. I mean, not everything is necessarily connected with a straight line. But when you're playing with confidence – I mean, that's what everybody's looking for. How do you stay there? How do you operate out of that place? And as a 22-year-old player looking to reestablish himself, didn't have the spring that he wanted to in terms of the result, and winning that starting shortstop job had to go down to the minor leagues, now he's back and getting game-winning hits. And this goes back to the thing I was talking about earlier, and maybe it's worth talking about again here as we kind of wrap up the show. You think about all the different pieces that the Braves roster is going to have and the decisions that they're going to have to make within the next two, maybe three weeks, if things go well. You're going to get Travis Darno and Michael Harris back. You're going to hopefully get Orlando Arcia back in a number of weeks. You've got Sam Hilliard playing extremely well in center field. I think Eddie Rosario has been showing some signs for the Braves of contributing, and I do think Eddie is going to contribute this year. Kevin Pillar and Eli White have been perfectly good, and if Vaughn Grissom's up from AAA and hitting, where's that roster spot going to be vis-a-vis Marcel Ozuna? How can you look at that? group that I just mentioned, if they're playing well, and of course, if the guys who aren't healthy come back and are healthy, I don't really see how you can look at that and say, hey, the bats are best spent on this guy because we owe him 36 or $37 million. I get the business sense. And let me just remind you, and this is a reminder for me too, it's really easy to spend other people's money. So when you say, oh, well, they should just eat that contract and get rid of them. Yeah, maybe. And clubs do that. And maybe this has reached that point, that critical mass where that decision is going to be made. And maybe that's going to happen sometime around the end of April when Travis Darnot comes off the I.L. you hope when you get Michael Harris back which could be sooner than that then you're going to have some questions about what are you doing with these extra outfielders who's getting these reps who's the D.H. on that day and Marcelo Zuna ain't a pinch runner he is not a particularly productive bat to count on to pinch hit and he's certainly not a defensive replacement so you start to kind of do the math on this, and I know Alex Antopoulos has done an absolutely outstanding job of building a roster that has a lot of depth, a lot of different layers, and it's gotten tested more so in the first two weeks than anybody could have imagined maybe over the first two months. And they're sitting there with a 12-4 and record, best in the National League and second best in all of baseball, despite some of these setbacks and despite the fact that, more nights nice than not, they're not getting a ton out of Marcelo Zuna. So I guess the question is, at some point, when is enough enough? And I don't mean enough to justify the contract and keep him around. I mean, when have you seen enough of what the results have been since 2021 to say there's just not really any way that this guy can fit in our plans and contribute in a way that is going to make it worth not only giving him the at-bats but also the spot on the roster because I do think there's going to be a roster crunch once the of these guys get healthy and once they're able to get back to full strength. And full strength could include some very productive players that are going to take over the DH spot or take over an out, a corner outfield spot And you're just not going to have the same opportunity that you might have had in the month of April, if you're Marcel, to get off to a better start than three for 40 with two home runs and 13 strikeouts. That's just a rough look. And I know it's early and I know we talk about, you know, it's the first impression is not, you know, necessarily the stats you're going to get for the whole year, but when you're building on two straight years worth of really bad production, it just kind of adds on to what's already been a story for far, far too long. As we look ahead for this week for the Braves, they're going to head into San Diego. They'll face the Padres on Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday. A couple of night games and a late afternoon game for getaway day. They're off on Thursday are the Braves, and then they will crank things up at home against the Houston Astros. I'm excited about this series. I think this could be that, that October preview, that World Series preview. These two clubs have met before. We know how that one ended. We also know that the Astros were able to get things done last year and hoist that trophy. So could the last two teams to win the World Series And the two teams that met in October of 2021, meet again in 2023. If you look at the early results, it's kind of hard to argue against that, but we'll see how the whole thing plays out. But that'll wrap things up for this edition of From the Diamond. As always, I appreciate you joining me here on a Sunday afternoon or evening, if you prefer. Make sure you subscribe to From the Diamond wherever you get your podcasts. My thanks again to Eno Saris and to Melanie Newman for joining the show. My thanks to Dom, as always. We're keeping us going here. We'll catch you next Sunday right here on From the Diamond. Until then, I'm Grant McCauley, and this is Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. So long, everyone.